I'm Portia Sabin, and this is The Future of What. We're going to start this show in a different place than we normally do. We're going to begin with a family around the dinner table in a modest two-story suburban house. Quiet! Oh, except you should probably know, this family is totally fake. It's all part of a video shoot. And action step. Not yet. Okay, and now. Who's it? Here they are. Uh Uh-oh, who are these people? That's director Alicia J. Rose. She's shooting a video for the band Blitz and Trapper in Portland. And today, on The Future of What, we're talking about music videos. Is that when you're coming in, kind of just be a little lighter on your feet because it shakes the camera. In the heyday of MTV in the 80s, videos were a huge part of music discovery for a whole generation, myself included. And in those days, if you loved a song you heard in a video, you ran out and bought the album. With the decline of MTV and the rise of YouTube, making money from videos has changed radically, and videos have always been notoriously expensive to make. So how do videos fit in the music industry nowadays? It's all coming up on The Future of What. Courtney Smith is a former programmer at MTV and the author of Record Collecting for Girls. Courtney, thank you so much for being on The Future of What? Thanks for having me. So give us a little background. You were a programmer at MTV. You programmed Subterranean and MTVU. It's true. I started in the digital space and I did a lot of acquisition for MTV.com. And then I got a TV show. They gave me Subterranean on MTV2. And I got really involved with MTVU. And that led to lots and lots of involvement with MTV. (laughs) They start to believe you after a while and play the things you tell them to. (laughs) You become the voice of reason. Like, listen to me. I know what I'm talking about. That's that's very cool. I'm glad it was you in that position and not somebody else because I can imagine many worse people. Let's talk for a second about the history of MTV because MTV arose as such a force in the early 80s. And when I, I actually grew up in New York in the early, you know, obviously in the 70s and 80s. And when it started, I remembered we had cable boxes and you had to actually hold the dial for children listening. There was a thing called a dial. <laughs> You had to hold the dial between two stations and you could get MTV. Yeah. And it was so exciting. So we had to like stand there holding it in 1980 or whatever that was. And we were so like, we were just super obsessed with MTV and it became such a big thing for us. And I think that really watching videos is what informed the musical taste of a whole generation, like my whole generation. But I think there's a really interesting story about what videos first appeared on MTV. Yeah, so it started out as this really little network. Very few people got it. It wasn't in New York City. It was in New Jersey. Like, they had to go to New Jersey for the launch party of MTV because they couldn't get it in the city, which is hilarious. And they weren't getting videos from American labels. There wasn't That wasn't a thing that was a line item in the budget for American artists, really. They weren't getting videos from American labels? No. So 
they were creating those videos if the label, if the artist was signed overseas, they were creating them in other territories because in the UK in particular, there were a lot of places for videos to be shown on TV already. It was a thing. And there were performances uh, like, you know, Top of the Pops and all the stuff you hear about, the Midnight Rider show, whatever. So they would take those as live performances and turn them in. And the whole cottage industry of box sets, VHS sets were big there. It just wasn't big in America. People wanted to go see the band live or hear them on the radio, and that was all they cared about. So that's why a lot of MTV looks so different than what was on the radio when it launched. Probably 50% of it looked quite different because they were getting these British bands who were very styled, very pretty, very young, and what was on American radio was definitely not that. That said, there was definitely that American radio touch. If you look back at some of the first videos that were played, there was a lot of REO Speedwagon, a lot of April Wine, a lot of Rod Stewart, like a lot. He had a lot of videos. Don't know why. I think he was very (laughs) impressed with himself. Oh, my gosh. So it was interesting. There were some artists that fit that mold, and there was uh, material out there that were big in America, but frankly, a lot of them weren't. And it was really interesting down the line to see how what was on MTV and how different it was started to influence what was on the radio in America. And ultimately, it's what caused alt-rock to become a thing. Well, yeah. And I was going to say, the second wave British invasion, the new romantics, like Duran Duran is... My obsession with John Taylor is entirely because MTV mm-hmm. <laughs> didn't get videos from U.S. labels. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you, U.S. labels. For so not. I'll tell you a fun <laughs> story. Uh, the 25th anniversary of MTV, I was working there and I was in the digital department. They had us recreate the first hour of MTV online, including commercials. And when I looked at what was in that hour, it was terrible. Like, it was awful. There was Pat Benatar, which was cool. That was the second video played on MTV. Right. And then just awful things you've never heard of. The one good thing I thought was Crowded House. That was nice. Oh, yeah. I like them. We like them. Oh, it was bad. But the fun part was watching the old commercials and trying to clear them. (laughs) For a music media licensing department, trying to locate people, companies that don't exist anymore. (laughs) Right. Oh, my God. My favorite was um, there was one classic rock band and I, oh, it was Styx. And they own all their own publishing now. They were in the first hour of MTV. They have like reclaimed all of their music. We went to to them to ask them to please clear this for us because it's not available anymore. They said, no, thanks. We're not interested. Wow. And there was no amount of money we could offer them that would make them say yes. Oh, my God. That's crazy. See, it's amazing how things change. Yeah. It's amazing. It's amazing when artists regain control of their own material, what they'll say no to. Just like, no, sorry, not interested. Yeah. Well, and that, I mean, we talk about that in the show a lot, how times have really changed. You know, we talk all the time about, you know, there used to be that thing about street cred that artists used to really feel serious about. And my label is a great example. I mean, you know, we wouldn't have had Bikini Kill licensing music to anything. And now it's like, I feel like there was this moment in history where everything changed. And now people are desperate. They're like, how do you get my my song in an iPod commercial? You know, I- it's like this moment. I just wrote an article about this for Pitchfork because there's this graph going around that is the, what are the timeless songs of the future? And it's this guy that analyzed Spotify data to see what songs from the Billboard Hot 100 before 2005 are the most played on Spotify. And he, I looked at it and so many of them were things that have had syncs. And I was just like, that's 
the key. It's an X factor that's outside the scope of what he was looking at. But the title ended up being the reason that Don't Stop Believing is never going away. <laughs> that's a song that wasn't on the radar. Like that wasn't on MTV. It wasn't a big video hit. It wasn't a big radio hit. It was like in the not even top 10, I think, of Billboard Hot 100. And now it's a classic, remember, like a milestone of the 80s. Is that because of Glee? No, I think it started, well, I know it started with the first placement, like a little bit of a resurgence in 2003 with Monster. 2005, the New York Times did a think piece because Laguna Beach on MTV and Family Guy both used the song in the same week and it became the number one song on the iTunes sales chart. Oh my God. And everybody was kind of wondering why, so... People that weren't into lowbrow culture had to have it explained to them by the New York Times. <laughs> and then in 2007, it was the final song on The Sopranos. And then oh. 2009, Glee used it. And right. it's like by that time, it had been completely rewritten as a huge hit of the 80s, which it actually wasn't. Thank God that I asked you that question and you have done the research and you know the answer. That's amazing. <laughs> I'm having you on all the time. Courtney Smith, who knows everything about everything. All she's the useless information. It. I've got it. That's well, that's you know, my head is stuffed with lyrics from the 80s. You know, it's like if you need a, you know, whatever, like simply red lyric, I'm, I'm here to help. And who needs that? Nobody. Nobody needs that. So tell me, when you were programming for Subterranean and MTVU, tell me what that was like at MTV. The process for labels I thought was interesting because we were still making people submit beta tapes then. You could submit a DVD to have the video reviewed, which was easy enough and not expensive. But if it was accepted for play on air, you had to submit a beta that is closed captioned. And closed captioned is where it got expensive. Like that costs three to $500, depending on how close a source you have to get a good deal on it. Mm -hmm. And that is hard for indie artists to justify because if it was something that it was accepted for just to be played on Subterranean on MTV2. When I took that show over, I started playing things three times max because the audience wanted more variety. Before that, it was four to six times. Mm. It's still a hard cost to justify for that few plays for a show that was airing anywhere between 11 and 1 a.m. at night on a Sunday evening. Right. Uh, you would hit your target audience. Like, it was pretty specific, and we were really sure the people tuning in were the right people, people that cared about that music. But is it worth it? That's always a question people had to ask, and people had to have explained to them, you know, legally, you have to close caption. We can't play it if you don't. It's not our decision. It's, you know, the FCC. Right. But once you got through that hurdle, and eventually they launched MTV2 in 2003, and it kind of became a bigger thing in 2005, that was more exposure for indie artists, and you would get, I don't know, anywhere between 20 and 100 plays on MTVU, or if it were really high rotation, more than that if it stayed in for a long time. That made it easier, but it was really difficult still at first because that's a channel that's mostly on in public areas on college campuses. Some colleges had it in their dorm rooms, but, you know, not that many. And it was hard to quantify how many people were watching. So there was a little bit of you just have to believe us mm -hmm. for a while. And I feel like that's what that channel still suffers from. People don't know it exists because they don't live on college campuses. Right. So I don't know how much college students at this day and age even pay attention to whatever's turned on in like their public areas. I think if they want to watch a video, they're just watching it on YouTube when they want to watch it. Right. Yeah. Or hear a song, same thing. Right. 
So it was uh, always difficult for that particular brand of audience. I, By the time I left MTV in 2008, I really started to wonder why even major labels bothered to submit because there were so few hours that MTV was on the air and there was not as much web traffic to their site. So having your video there wasn't a great boon. You could just put it on YouTube yourself for free so and then collect money off of that. Right. Whereas when it's in anyone else's ecosystem, you're not collecting any of the money. Right. And the the problem for labels like mine is, you know, if the costs associated with making videos have pretty much stayed pretty high, like mm-hmm. they're not, it's not getting any cheaper to get a music video director and props and set and all that stuff that you need. And then to add on top of that, exactly, like you said, the cost of closed captioning, I actually remember the last time we did it. And I think it was around 2009. Yeah. And it was a thermals video. And I'm pretty sure we just did that, and then we were like, nope. Yeah, not worth <laughs> it anymore. Also, <laughs> we had a lot of trouble finding vendors who did the closed captioning. So that was like an industry that was shutting down, that was really becoming reduced. So it became harder and harder to find what we needed to make that happen. And then the return wasn't there on our investment. And that's so funny because in the early days of MTV, I don't know if you could say it was a one-to-one ratio, but certainly you know, we had no options. If you heard a song on MTV that you loved, first of all, the heavy rotation stuff was like, I mean, we just saw it all the time. It was just ubiquitous. And then we'd run out and buy the record because that was the only way to get it. Absolutely. Yeah, that was the thing. I mean, that's what people talk about, you know, MTV and they don't play music videos anymore. They don't do that because nobody watches them. Now we have the internet. And if (laughs) you want to watch a music video, you just do whenever you want to. But that was so cool. That was me in the 80s as well in Texas and my cousins and my grandparents' house. We would hide out in the back room and watch MTV all day (laughs) obsessively. They got really into Def Leppard, as I recall. Oh, yeah. yeah. There was a lot of Mm. muttling going on. Yep. I got really into Duran Duran, of course. Mm-hmm. Like the Rio video was the best. That was thing the in best the world. video in the world. But that's the thing I look at now versus then. I feel like videos were low cost to a certain degree, but really cool because all the ideas hadn't been had yet. Right. It was all new. It's yeah. so hard now to come up with something that's both cost effective and you know, interesting uh, that people want to watch repeatedly. And I've thought about this a lot because I've been asked by a lot of people through the years what to do for your video. My number one piece of advice is always if the director sends you a proposal that in any way references the Pixies or the replacements, don't do that. <laughs> like that was cool at a time. Right. But that doesn't fly anymore. Not like anymore. you yes. can't. Gosh. Um, yeah. 25 it, years later, at least. Seriously. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's really now you've got to, when you're making a music video, I think think about YouTube and think about what's going to make people either share it or watch it more than once. Is it going to be that you have buried interesting things in there that they have to watch several times to catch them all? Is it going to be that it's so shocking that they want to share it with everyone? MIA is like a master of that. Mm -hmm. Um, The one video I thought was an interesting rewatch that worked then and would work now was the that Shen's video where they recreated all the album covers. Oh yeah, I forget which song that was. That was a brilliant idea because you have to watch it and watch it and watch it to figure out what all of them are and catch every reference. Well, one thing that I thought was so great about videos in the old days, at least in my sort of you know tainted rose-colored glasses memory version was that there were so many story videos and it was really fun because you'd have to start at the beginning of the video and go all the way through 
and really see like what happens. It's true. Like even that weird song, I'll never remember what the band was called right at this moment, but it was the Beauty and the Beast video. Do you remember that where the girl is <laughs> was like it running? Meatloaf, I would do anything for love. <laughs> no, it was definitely not. It was a British band. It was like all the set was totally smoked. It was like these woods with tons of smoke and this girl and then a diaphanous nightgown running through the woods and this guy like a beast on a horse chasing her it was i don't remember but yeah there were a lot of those kate bush was really good at those videos that were um, either a story or a political message or both in a diaphanous nightgown in a diaphanous nightgown of course with hair flowing (laughs) (laughs) and etherealness just oozing out of her yes yeah i find that a lot of bands when i was there and we would the way it worked at mtv when i was there was there was a thing called the video acquisition meeting And the whole department, which was quite a lot of people at the time, was expected to sit there and watch everything that was submitted, like from Beyonce and Britney Spears to the most obscure metal videos, which were, frankly, the most fun to watch because they have stories and props and like fun stuff going on there. How long did that take? Oh, we always allotted an hour to an hour and a half for it every Friday. Sometimes it would be shorter, but it really depended on how many videos were submitted that week. Wow. That's a lot. There there would be some good things. And we don't always watch the whole video either. Like if it was really terrible or just like very rote, we would watch the first minute and be like, okay, well, we're going to do this with this. Thanks mm-hmm. so much. And then that's usually happened on Fridays. And then on Mondays, we had the music meeting where everyone, if not the whole department was in the music meeting, but the decision makers. And I called it MTV Debate Club because <laughs> we would fight like sometimes knock down drag out fights over what was going to be played where. And at the time, MTV had launched a bunch of channels because there was a big movement by cable operators to, you know, pull people away from the internet. So there was MTV and MTV2 and MTV Jams and MTV Hits and MTV U and all of these networks to worry about, VOD and Palladia. Wow. So there were a lot of places for things to go. So that led to a lot of highly entertaining conversations. No doubt. Like, is this person ready to graduate from MTV Jams and go to MTV2 yet? As a serious, (laughs) deep conversation. Wow. So you said that you actually have influenced some styles of videos in the past with your advice. I accidentally set off a small revolution circa 2004 or 5 of animated videos in indie rock because (laughs) (laughs) so many people would ask what what they could do to make their videos better, the people at labels that commissioned. And there were a lot of just at the time, there was a big trend towards performance and then b-roll of story and a lot of the bands were maybe not super attractive like they just weren't that dynamic to look at it was you know that's we were in an anonymous time yeah (laughs) and so i suggested they should maybe look at animating their videos instead and there was like the first grizzly bear video was animated pinback started animating their videos and i was just we got so many that people that knew i did that show were like there are a lot of animated videos lately. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's true. I should I probably wonder. come up with another idea to tell people. <laughs> and, of course, animated videos didn't help on my side of things because animated videos are often more expensive They're and they take longer. They take so much longer, yeah. They're definitely prettier and they can be eye-catching when they're not in a sea of other animated videos. I mean, I think some of the most memorable things in MTV history were animated or special effects like Peter Gabriel and his stop mm-hmm. motion world and uh-huh. Phil Collins' Land of Confusion. Yes, aha. Uh-huh. Yeah. There were some really good ones, but it's so expensive. They're yeah. good for a reason. Yeah, it's true. 
and the rest of us are like, nope, sorry, can't afford yeah. it. <laughs> Courtney Smith is a former programmer at MTV and the author of Record Collecting for Girls. Courtney, thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, thanks. This was fun. Yay. We're talking music videos on this episode of The Future of What? In a moment, we'll talk videos with the head of Wind Up Records here in New York City. Stay with us. Ed Vetri is the president and CEO of Wind Up Records. Ed, thanks for joining us on The Future of What? My pleasure. I enjoy being here with you, Portia. Yeah, it's awesome. So today we're talking about music videos. Mm -hmm. And the reason I wanted to talk to you is because you run a company that has had some real big artists that have had some really great music videos in the past. Mm -hmm. And I remember in particular that Evanescence video for Bring Me to to Life. Life. Yes. It had the white curtains billowing out the window. Yes. Yes. Yeah, that video, I mean, it's one of those videos that you just remember. Yeah. You know, back back then when we were making those type of videos, those what we called MTV-styled videos, and that was even part of the contracts back then. Mm-hmm. We were, to make, were required to make an MTV-style video. Oh, within that, the what, contract with the artists. Within the contract with many of our artists back then, which was... What you wanted to do is a, is a ubiquitous cap to what you're doing at radio. So you had all the success maybe at radio, you have bands with that kind of heat, and then you have this ubiquity now that you bring the video on, and it gets broadcast play. So it was about getting broadcast play. So it was about having big budgets and making big videos. We learned a couple of things, that some artists, a great artist, and we had great artists, singer-songwriters, but they're not really actors. With Amy Lee in the video you mentioned, we did send Amy to school, movement classes and various things sort of, training, I would say, not school, to actually get prepared because we knew we had sort of the tiger by the tail with Evanescence. She had a beautiful woman, an amazing look, and obviously a great voice. So we wanted her to be prepared for videos. Wow. For that. And so that Bring Me to Life was the first video that we did. And we also were able to use one of our other artists, 12 Stones, in the video to perform the rap part of it, which was all not in the demo version. It came later on. But that video, Amy, was spectacular, very comfortable in front of the camera. And a lot of artists, a lot of rock stars that we have weren't as comfortable in front of the camera. And so you often had to make edits and retakes and try to make it work. That was magic. And then, obviously, that single went from uh, release to four weeks later, number one song in the country. So uh, it was very popular. The video was a very big part of that. And it made Evanescence our first really worldwide band. Yeah. Worldwide success. Worldwide success. And I feel like that's something we talked earlier in the show to Courtney Smith, who used to be a programmer at MTV. Mm-hmm. And she was talking about how in the early days of MTV, you know, the U.S. labels didn't get on board with videos, but the U.K. labels already had systems set up. You know, they had channels mm-hmm. to play videos and stuff like that. So I feel like that's an interesting component. At some point, the U.S. labels really got wise to that. Like, wait, if we make a video for MTV, it's not only going to serve us here. It's going to serve us internationally, too, because there's outlets all over the world. And that's really how Evanescence became bigger, actually, internationally. And that video was that launch, and we shot all her videos overseas. Oh, really? We actually shot them. We shot uh, My Immortal in um, um, France. We shot in Romania. We shot Bring Me to Life. Wow. So they were shot purposely overseas. Um, The band was touring. It made sense for that. But really, we wanted a feel of of an international flavor to the videos because we knew the artists had much more success. And there's a lot more opportunity to get the video played. You know, some countries played that, you know, 20, 30, 40 times a day, that video, early on. So it really was the video was a key ingredient that broke, I think, Evanescence, internationally especially. Yeah. So now how have things changed? Because obviously 
Well, things change. You know, you can't rent helicopters anymore to drop stars, Scott Stapp, <laughs> off on a rooftop, and uh, or tigers. So Amy Lee's other videos. So, so the cost of renting the tiger for the day may have been a lot more. And that was in call me when you're sober. So the budgets have changed dramatically. Mm-hmm. And also back then, it was about having a big budget to make a big splash, to make something right. special. And sometimes those videos weren't always great. Evanescence was great. All her videos were great. But she's very skilled at it. Other times, the videos weren't great. They were just big enough budgets, and they just supplemented what we were doing at radio so to get that broadcast appeal now i think what's changed is a technology you know so now the artists are much more in control of the video i've signed bands i was just signed a band a, a rapper from australia named all day based on the video i saw and wow. sometimes i also often want to shut the videos off because they're so good and just <laughs> listen to the music because wait a minute am i being captured by the video here right or should i get back and just listen to the audio so i think what's changed is technology now we've put the creative end of it not in the director's hands where it was but actually you were hiring a director, a sexy director to work your artist video. Now you have a sexy artist doing an artist video mm-hmm. because they actually control the technology. So we've had videos, million dollar videos, and now $1,500 videos or $2,500 videos, most of it artist driven. Mm-hmm. And you know we have artists that we sign that come to us with four and five, six videos already made. They, may, they do it on their own and they make them relatively cheap. So we try to follow that path, A, because they have a creative vision already, they grew up with a video camera and an iPhone and different than the artists of the past that didn't have that technology. So I think the technology has been a big change. And the artist now has the tools on their fingertips to make their own videos. And they, they're very good at it. And they're much more comfortable in front of a camera, much more comfortable in front of a video camera than the artists, I think, in the 80s and 90s were. Interesting. You know? That's a really interesting change yeah. that I wouldn't Even have thought my, of. My favorite artist, Bruce Springsteen, I remember dancing in the dark. He just did not look comfortable doing that <gasps> dancing with Courtney Cox. Nope. And I would, but it's Bruce, <laughs> so you could do no wrong, but you could, how it's changed. I, but a good point is like he wasn't an actor. He was a rock star. Exactly. That made videos. Now I think we have artists that are a little bit of everything. They're just multi-talented in a sense that they can do that because they can create, they had to, they're forced to create their own videos. They, they, and instead of it being a big broadcast production, it's a YouTube production. You know, right. and people see it on their phones. Mm-hmm. So it's not that big screen appeal. I think it's just being clever, being smart, and doing something that can capture people's attention. Like Gautier, that video broke that artist here. Absolutely. And it was a video. So sometimes the video can still drive the, the artist's success and still lead the way in a lot of cases. Right. Now, how about the financial side? Because we just don't have the same, there's not the same correlation anymore between play on MTV and, you know, sales. Right. So what does that look like? Well, the play on MTV is de minimis or has gone away. Right. And, you know, I think artists that came from a different era just were used to big, and I sure it still happens with Katy Perry and Rihanna, and I'm sure there's a very big budget videos, different level artists, the rest of us that work independent labels, I think we look at the video is a supplemental tool, a very important one still. It still casts a visual over your band that people may have just heard the audio. And I think it's a very important piece of that, what, what you're doing to try to develop an artist. But it's done, you know, we, we've, we do those videos. We don't look at budget. We look at a solution. What do we need? Do we need a, can the artist shoot it themselves? Can we hire a director? And I think college students or, or students at NYU we've used a few times. We've done contesting. So we found ways to make videos between $1,000 and $15,000, I think. was I think Griswold's video, which was a top 10 alternative song, was about a $15,000 video. We knew we had the song 
already. So mm-hmm. we were able to invest a little bit more. We still formed a shot in a native Australia, but it was a director they used in the past. And we were able to do that for about, I think, $15,000. And that was our most expensive video, I think, of the year. Wow. So that's clearly a change from the million-dollar days. Big change from the million-dollar <laughs> days. It's it's non-supportive. And even and, and we know they're more, I think they're monetized even in much more much more diverse platforms than they ever were today, mm-hmm. but it's a small piece of change that comes through. In the past, we didn't worry about any money directly associated with videos. It was really promotional, right. you know, for us. And uh, and just when well, you're driving sales and you're selling full albums at eighteen ninety eight, you're not exactly worried about the, the the cost of the videos. It, it works out. Now it's a uh, it's it's as integral as it was, as important as it was, but it has to be done on a relatively thin budget. Right. Definitely. There's not upside directly monetarily tied to the videos anymore. Right. Now, do you guys worry about or care about the placement for videos, like premieres, when you have a premiere? We'd like to go where the consumers we find find our videos, and that's primarily YouTube. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we for our developing artists, I think we can get it out in a ubiquitous fashion on YouTube. We want everybody to see it. That's what's most important. Now, if we're setting up an artist, there's an opportunity for press with an NPR or someone else, we will... We'll hold that video and we'll look for the right opportunity we do first. But, um, you know, if it's a, if maybe a bigger artist, a Vivo premiere might be something worthwhile. So, yeah, we look for the best premiere opportunities. Usually it's blogs where we find the most because it gets shared the most that way. But um, ultimately it ends up on YouTube and that's probably where it needs to live at the end of the day. But we do look for premieres early on. Mm-hmm. Nylon, okay. Fader, you know, NPR, things of that nature. Right. So do you think that this, uh, this is an interesting point that you've brought up, this idea of artists being more comfortable in front of the camera. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if that has to do with just the social changes that now everyone has a camera, has yeah. a phone with a camera in it. Absolutely. I think they're growing up that way. If you sign an artist that's 20 years old, today, they, they only know, you know, cameras on their phones and, and easily, and we had, you know, back then, you know, you need a big cameras that were the size of this room or this table <laughs> we're talking in front of. Now it's uh, simply can done on an iPhone in high quality. And I, I do believe that artists today are just much more familiar with that. And especially from the Instagrams, the Snapchats, it's all visual. Everything is visual. So I think the kids today and, and therefore the artists we, we sign today are much more comfortable in front of the camera, much more knowledgeable of the camera, and, much more, and understand how to tell a story visually. Not just artistically and through the audio, but they understand how to tell a story visually. And I think when you look at their the songs and you listen to the songs, a lot of times I'm... I'm I'm just blown away and impressed by the videos they send us sometimes before we even sign them because they understand who they are and they understand how to use those creative tools mm-hmm. to get their point across, to get their song across. So uh, they're, they're much more successful today with that. Ed Vetri is the president and CEO of Wind Up Records. Ed, thank you so much. You're welcome. My absolute pleasure to see you and uh, having this nice discussion. Alicia J. Rose is a video director, producer, editor, and photographer. Alicia, thanks for joining us on The Future of What? Hey, thanks for having me, Portia. I'm a huge fan. I'm a huge fan of yours. Oh, Woo! boy. Mutual Admiration Society. <laughs> We're in. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> Yay. So you have been shooting videos for bands for how many years now? Well, I started as a photographer and switched into music videos in 2008. So it's been a while. You've seen some ups and downs in the industry. Yeah, I started kind of when the technology became accessible and then just went, you know, full bore on the whole Jimmy Jam. 
So can you tell us from a directorial standpoint, what have you seen in terms of the way that labels and bands approach videos now as opposed to when you started? Well, when I started to now, there's not a huge difference. I think when, when I was first obsessed with music videos, there's been a huge difference. So growing up, both of us probably, you know, in the 80s and 90s, you know, the music video was a very different thing. There were huge budgets and, you know, crazy concepts and a lot of money and a lot of resources being, being put toward them as sort of one of the main promotional exercises of a record. Well, now, in theory, it's still kind of the same except for the budgets. <laughs> Right. <laughs> so they're still really important. They're still important to the process. They're still a crucial part of promoting a record, except that the amount of money being spent, you know, it's not a 50000 or a $100,000 budget. It's a, you know, $500 to 5000 to maybe, if you're lucky, ten. And sometimes they're bigger. But, you know, the range is, is much more austere compared to, you know, the glory days, as it were. And I personally got in just a little too late to experience any of that. So I've been on the, like, the pauper tip being creative with very limited resources since the moment I started. What would you say is the average budget for a video these days from an indie label? The, the average budget that comes my way, and I'm not saying I say yes to all of these, it's probably on the low side, three, maybe even lower, and I won't even, can't really even have the conversation at that point. But the, the low side, three, at the high side, 10, that's about the average of what I'm dealing with. That being said, thousands, right? Thousands. We're talking thousands. Yeah, not yeah. hundred, not dollars, three thousand. <laughs> I was gonna say three hundred dollars. <laughs> I would. Hello, Sorry. I have to go commit Harry Carey <laughs> in the hot tub. So I'll see you later. <laughs> um, no, <laughs> three thousand to ten thousand is about the average, and I try to encourage people to you know save their ducats so that that can be the the baseline. And I'm not necessarily the right director for that baseline. But that being said, you know, like. I'm a fan first. It's just, you know, we're, we relate on this. We've known each other for a long time. You know, I'm a fan, number one. That's the thing. So if I love a band, you know, I, music videos are sort of the loss leader of my business. So, you know, I can do something creative and wild and different and incredible and insane on a really low budget. And it sort of, in a way, proves to the commercial and the bigger world that, you know, you know, I've got a creative eye, I suppose, you know, and I can do accomplish a lot for a little, which these days goes a long way, I think, when trying to build a career as a director. Right. So it is interesting to me because, of course, someone who's on the other end who's running a label, you know, we're trying to keep our costs down. And the biggest problem with videos has always been that it's not a one-to-one -one correlation. You can't say, well, if we put out a really great video, we're definitely going to sell X number of records. But at the exact same time, you can be pretty sure that if you don't put out any video at all, you know, it's not going to do as well because people love videos, you know, it's, and, and a visual component is really important for people to get a sense of the band. And, you know, all of us remember really great videos, you know, things that we've seen where we're like, never forget, like the aha video or... Oh, I love the Rio video. video. There's so many good <laughs> ones. And that's the thing that hasn't changed. And in fact, in a way, it's it's more glorious than ever. It's this incredible golden age because now you don't have to be Duran Duran to make a music video. You know, you can be Corin Tucker or, you know, any band, you know, she's actually pretty fancy, but you know, like any, <laughs> she's a rock star, but you know, a smaller baby band. Like I just made a video for a gal in Seattle named Brianna Morela. First record, first, not her first video, but pretty close to being one of her first. And, you know, her label put in 
you know, I can't say exactly what the budget was, but it wasn't at the bottom. It wasn't at the top. It was still legit. And they were like, we need this because this is a crucial part of telling this artist's story. And without right. without a video component, you know, you, ca- you can only do so much with photos and the music. I mean, the music's the most important thing. We know that. And the photos help are a crucial part also of telling that story and giving a, a, it's sort of a bird's eye view into who that person is. But the video, whether it's sort of art directed and help like sort of on some level creatively conceived by the artist or approved by the artist or the director like me comes up with a concept that really plays with you know, the artist's intent in a way that shines a new light on them. You know, there's lots of different ways that sort of it can go. But I, it, it, in this day and age, with the accessibility of video being as simple and as sort of, you know, close as it is, it, it is crucial. And without it, it's a, it's a missing element that I think any artist would say it, it can be a big problem if they don't do it. If they don't do it on time, if they don't do it well, a bad video can hurt, you know, as much as a good video can help. It's pretty wacky. But yet there's no money <laughs> Well, right. Exactly. It's it's a very strange. It's like, you know, it's like a promotional item, but such a fancy, shiny, expensive promotional item. You know, it's like we all made. (laughs) I can't even think like, you know, gilded statuettes. You know, it's like this is my promotional item that I'm giving away. It costs a whole lot of money, but it's not actually, you know, we can't actually say for sure that it's anything except, you know, making people go, wow, that's pretty. Well, but but, it, but 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 as it, it although I will say, I mean, it really does make a difference, though. I mean, it it you can say it's pretty, say it's more, but you know, really, without it, it's a dearth. It's a bad thing if you don't do it. So it's this funny little irony that occurs, where you know the amount that gets spent based is sort of based on how well the record can do or how well the band does, and. But, you know, that being said, it does lead to other work. I mean, I got a job, for example, directing a political commercial last year because of my the video I made for Bob Mould. So, awesome. you know, I made a bunch of money off that. That was incredible. That's how I lived for half the year. I mean, right. so, so That's fantastic. you got to keep that in mind. I mean, for me, it's just this incredible forum to sort of do these incredible, wild, you know, risky filmmaking things that you don't really get the chance to do in commercial work. And, you know, I'm trying to build that. That part of my business and I feel like music videos for me are such a natural fit because I'm such a nerd and a fan and and I'm you know so comfortable in the visual mediums as well that you mm-hmm. know for me like I dreamed about music videos when I was 10 years old like I made them up all the time when I was a kid I encourage kids these days to do the same like I constantly <laughs> made up music videos in my head all the time so coming back around to it in 2008 after booking clubs after being a photographer and, and actually after having gone to school to college in the early days to do just this but just not doing it, you know, I, I found that it's like, it's a passion thing for me. And I've made over 24 now, which is ridiculous. But yeah, <laughs> I can't That's stop, great. apparently. It's very cool. Stop. Alicia J. Rose is a video director, producer, editor, and photographer. She also is the creator of a new web series called The Benefits of Guzbandry. Alicia, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much, Portia. I hope that you learned something new about music videos today. <laughs> I hope everyone learned something new. (laughs) Yay. All right. Wonderful to talk to you, my dear. Jack Conte is a musician and entrepreneur and one half of the duo Pomplamoose. Jack, welcome to the future of what? Thanks for having me. So you have a unique approach to your videos. Can you tell us about it? We started uploading videos in 2006, 2007. And when we started, the idea was actually back back then, the, the real idea was to drive people to our MySpace page. 
<laughs> so we, we would upload videos and, and ask people to uh, please check out our music on MySpace because that's really where we were trying to get build a community. And, and at the time, you know, we were focused on basically making videos that were visual representations of what it's like to be in a, in a recording studio. I was sort of feeling like, you know, I, I wanted to make something that was just really reflective of sort of slice of life, really reflective of what it's actually like to be, you know, a, a working musician. And, you know, it's not, at least from, from my perspective, what it was like for me was not, you know, craziness and multi-million dollar recording studios and record deals and, and all this kind of stuff. It was very much like a homegrown operation with blankets on the walls for sound diffusion. And, and so, you know, we wanted to make these videos that were just reflective of exactly what it was like, just sort of like a very honest, you know, portrait of being, a, you know, a, a musician in, in 2008, 2009. So we made these videos where they had two rules. It was called a video song. The idea was what you see is what you hear. We, we would actually literally film the takes as we were recording the audio. So it was literally the actual take that you hear in the final recording was the filmed version of it. And then the second rule uh, was that there's, if you hear it at some point in the recording, there's no hidden sound. So you get to see it too. So it's sort of like a, a reveal too. It's like, if you think of a, you know, when I listen to like Radiohead records or even like, you know, Beatles records, sometimes there's a sound and I'm just like, what the fuck is that sound? How did they make that? This is like a reveal of the magic tricks. Like, okay, here's this weird sound and, you know, we're running a banjo through a distortion pedal and then putting a delay on it and then tweaking the delay time. And you kind of get to see all of that happen. And that's what's, you know, ultimately responsible for these weird sounds. And I liked that idea because, you know, there's educational too. Like, you know, I listen to a lot of records and, you know, still listen to records, you know, Tame and Paul and all these cool, all these cool bands I like that get these amazing sounds. And I just, I want to know how they make them. And so I, the whole purpose of the video song or part of the purpose of the video song was, you, know, you get to see how this stuff is done. And then I guess around 2011, 2012, Natalie and I got kind of sick of making those videos. We made them for like four or five years and, um, and we wanted to try something else like more traditional narrative music videos. So we started, you know, doing a lot of storytelling and music videos and and then at some point we sort of got into projection mapping and doing, you know, 3D projected videos on on 3D surfaces. And that has been really fun too. just playing around with what is it like to project video onto, you know, a cube and, you know, how can we sort of make that a really cool visual experience and, and tell stories, you know, with with projections. So that's sort of where we've been focusing over the last two years. Do you think your fans have really responded to that kind of technical part of the video making? Yeah, definitely. I, I I definitely think so. You know, I think if maybe if there's a common thread through Pomplamoose videos, it's this sense of like behind the scenes, like seeing seeing how things work. So there's like a lot of like explanatory shots in our videos, you know, for one of our most popular projection videos. You know, we literally like turn the camera around and you see the projector and then you see the HDMI cable that hooks the projector up to the computer. And then you see Final Cut Pro on the screen and you see the shapes on the screen and we pan the camera over to the set and you can see that shape traveling across three-dimensional set and how it responds to the various forms on the set. And I think that kind of, yeah, I think that sort of attracts, you know, technically inclined folks you know, who, who sort of like to, to learn, you know, about visuals, about production, about music, um, you know, audio engineers, you know, video producers, it definitely attracts that crowd, I think, because of the educational component of the videos. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I would, I would agree. I think that's one of the things that makes them really interesting. And I think we've been talking on this show today about videos and sort of the transition from MTV to YouTube over time. And I think that's one thing about YouTube is it's not really enough to just have a video. You have to have something about it that really makes it something that people want to share and watch more than once. Mm -hmm. And I think that you guys have sort of tapped into that in a lot of your videos. You really 
have captured something that people are interested in, which is kind of like, how does this work? What is going on? Right. Exactly. And you've you've also been pretty lucky, and you can tell me if it's luck or if it's something else, but you've had several videos featured on the main page of YouTube, which, as far as I can tell, is is a pretty big deal. Yeah, it, it definitely, like, sparked things for us. I think our first feature was in... Actually, I can, I can tell you. <laughs> Give me one second here. <laughs> was it in 2008? Um... Probably, you know, I, I, it was so exciting at the time. You know, I, I took, I took screenshots. You know? <laughs> it, was, it was so exciting. Um, yeah, I think it was 2008. And, you know, it was this video called Hail Mary and, and we got like a couple hundred thousand views. And at the time, you know, we had 7,000 subscribers or 8,000 subscribers. And it was a huge boost for us. Just tremendous boost, you know, it really started things. And then, then at that point, it's about, okay, you know, how, how do you just keep making things and keep being creative? Now you're under all this pressure and you have all these new subscribers who want to see your next thing and how do you not let that like affect your art and affect your productivity and just like scare the crap out of you and right you know so that that was the trick at that point and then we you know we we kept going we released a bunch more videos in the in the remaining two years there and then and then yeah we got featured a couple more times you know youtube sort of switched to algorithmic recommendations on the front page instead of human curated front page so mm-hmm. the rest of our videos that got featured after that one were featured because they were getting a lot of hits as opposed to featured because people thought they should be getting a lot of hits right right and that's that's sort of a different a different vibe but yeah that that first one was really formative for the band no doubt you know it made it gave it was a huge morale boost too we felt like okay we we're making something and, you know, people are connecting with it. And, you know, 10% of the comments are like the dirtiest things I've ever heard in my life and <laughs> wouldn't even repeat to like, you know, my high school friends. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, despite that, the 90% that, that likes it, you know, man, maybe this is enough. Maybe this is enough to kind of make a career out of this. And yeah, that was, that was like just such a wonderful feeling and really exciting. Yeah. So one of the things we're talking about today with people is is that one of the problems with videos is that they have been consistently expensive to make. And so in a market where, you know, labels like my label, like we're always trying to save money and cut costs, things like videos become a more and more debatable investment because it's just hard to be sure that there's going to be a real return. And so when you make videos, I mean, your videos don't look cheap. So like, how much would you say you spend on your videos? And then how do you fund them? Yeah, first of all, thanks. <laughs> um, <laughs> second of all, Pomplamoose, gosh, you know, yeah, I, I, we, we, you know, we make a video a month. So we can't spend a lot on our videos. We don't make a ton of money, but we make enough to, to survive like comfortably. You know, I bought a house a couple of years ago and, you know, we, we built a recording studio and that's where we, where we make all our videos and where we make all our, all our music. And it's kind of enough, you know, we, between three roommates and, and a few thousand bucks a month in, in iTunes sales, we can kind of scrap together the, you know, the income to, to see there and it, and it, it feels, you know, it feels scrappy, but, but good. And because of that, you know, we're not spending a thousand bucks on every video, you know, we're, you know, we try and do it for, you know, three to 500 bucks. Occasionally we'll splurge on a music video and spend, you know, a grand or two grand. You know, we buy, we buy gear, but we try not to like buy gear that we're not going to reuse for any particular video. So, you know, we do the whole thing ourselves. It's just the two of us, you know, we, like I, I borrowed my dad's projector for all those projection mapping videos. (laughs) Wow. The biggest expense, yeah, the, the biggest expense was probably just the white foam core, which is like, <laughs> you know, like 30 bucks a sheet for, for sheets of like four by eight foam core. Uh-huh. And, you know, and then like 
we'll we'll splurge on like nice things that are gonna be with us for a long time. Like I, you know, I I bought a nice DSLR camera. I bought a can you know Canon seventy D, which is was like nine hundred dollars. But it's not you know for one video. It's for a lot of videos. Right. And we bought a really nice lens eventually down the road. But like I didn't even buy that stuff until like two thousand. 15 actually until this year wow. <laughs> like unless those projection videos were shot on my iphone <laughs> so like that's I was amazing using my iphone camera that's um, amazing was, yeah so i mean it you know and and we shoot it all ourselves and we have a, a guy who's been helping us recently in uh, you know our season two set of videos which was about 14 videos in 2014 um, he helped us shoot probably like four or five of them and we just did like a barter with him you know we, we let him use a couple of our songs in in a film that he's working on and he shot a couple videos for us but even then you know we, we do we do most of it ourselves so there's not it's not really that expensive we do fund videos through so i'm also the ceo of a company called patreon mm-hmm. which is like a it's ongoing funding for for creators this company i started about two years ago and pomplamoose is a creator on patreon so our fans pledge you know a buck or two bucks or some of them a hundred bucks per video that we release so i think we make we make a little over six thousand dollars per video on patreon and you know we split that between the two of us and actually that's enough to that between that and itunes sales really it's enough to like be a salary for us to keep going that's awesome so you're saying that you make money from download sales from the itunes store that's right so basically the videos are like what drive people but the sales come actually from the itunes store yeah, I mean, without being too cynical about it, a video is an advertisement for an MP3. <laughs> um, right, or, that or makes show. a lot of sense. Yeah. yeah, I'm an artist, and so I try to make videos that I believe in and love and, and feel proud of. But like, you know, the, the ad revenue from a video, I just checked ad revenue, you know, this morning actually for, for a video that I made in 2013. I spent over, this one was the most expensive video I've ever done in my life. It involved a 3D hexapod printed robot. It wasn't for Pop Moose, it was for myself. The video took me four months to make over $10,000. Um, <laughs> I literally drained my entire savings account on this one video. And I checked my ad revenue on it this morning. It was $640 for a cumulative <laughs> lifetime revenue. So the video itself isn't really a revenue stream it's it's community building and it's advertising for the mp3 for the show for the kickstarter campaign for the whatever the the video is you know a a utility to sort of like build fan base and like audience building is I, i think more important than making money because there's plenty of smart people figuring out how to help you know creators make money yeah um what's really important is like building the audience and and making making something that gives your fans value and, and is impactful in the world and, and that you feel proud of. And, and so that's kind of how we think about videos. You know, it's, it's sort of, it's a method of like building our audience. Now with, with Patreon, with this company, you know, now the, the video is actually like a form of revenue for us. Sure. It's like, yeah. you know, when we release a video, we get paid 6,000 bucks and that's right. awesome. So, that's awesome. So it's sort of, you know, it's not just really an advertisement anymore, I guess. Right. It's sort of an end, end product. Now you didn't mention yeah. Spotify or anything. Do you do you have your songs up on any of the streaming services? Yeah, I actually just did a study. I did a pretty comprehensive analysis like across all streaming platforms because uh-huh. I was interested in you know, there's a lot of talk of streaming and someone emailed me and said, you know, how much money do you make from streaming? And I said, I don't know. <laughs> and it's really hard to find out because it all comes from different DDPs and distributors and providers. And so I consolidated all the data in a spreadsheet and just kind of looked at what it is. And I, you know, at the end of the year in 2014, we made a cumulative that year, we made just under $6,000 in streaming revenue for the entire year. Wow. For, for all your songs. Catalog. Wow. And for all song, all Pomplum's songs ever. Wow. <laughs> um, 
on all streaming platforms, Spotify, Deezer, RDO, everything, international and national, total combined streaming income was like 5,900 bucks. That is so interesting. I mean, you know, we could talk about this forever, you know, because different, but that's what I found is that different bands have different, you know, places where they just really do great. And it completely depends on the band. It sounds like your fans, for whatever reason, would like to actually go and download the MP3 rather than listen to it on a stream. And maybe that's because they can look at it on YouTube. So it's like, that's the same function sort of as a streaming service. It's like, why not get the video as well? That's just a theory. (laughs) I don't know. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I, I don't know either. I think, you know, I think ugh, it's hard to say. I, you know, we used to sell more downloads than we do now. Obviously, the more active we are, the more downloads we get. So it's it's really directly correlated with like the quality and frequency of our videos. Right. But but I think it also is just changing, you know, three years ago, you know, four years ago, you know, before all these streaming services were really popular, and there was no other way to just listen to the music. You know, if you wanted to be, if you wanted Pomp Moose on your iPod, <laughs> you had to go to iTunes. And now, you know, now we're everywhere streaming for free. And, and I think a significant portion of our streams, you know, are eating iTunes sales, which is why on the whole, you know, digital downloads are, are actually down like for the first time recently. And and streams are way, way up. I think, you know, it's it's clearly cannibalizing the, the mechanical transaction of actually downloading an MP3. Not saying that's like bad. No, I think I'm it's just the my songs off the Right. I think it's just the way of the music yeah. industry yeah. today. I think that's just where we're at. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just all going to change and, and we all have to adapt really quickly. Yeah. <laughs> <That's all>. yeah. <laughs> Not asking yeah. much, just adapt really quickly. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. There's no point complaining about it. I mean, it's, it's going to happen. I think fighting streaming, honestly, is, uh, I mean, I don't want to speak poorly of any artists. I know it's a really controversial topic and I, I actually really respect the people who are standing up for their viewpoints on this. It's just, you know, in my, in my view, asking whether or not songs should be free is kind of a silly question at the point like songs are free it's not a matter of whether they should be free or should not be free they they are free <laughs> right and and we have infinite access to them anything you ever want any song you that's ever been recorded that you ever want you can have instantly for free so you know the should of it it's 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 inevitable the you know the trend line shows us where we're going and it's inevitable and i think what we have to do now is figure out okay now that songs are free that's the that's the conversation that I think is really important. It's like now that songs are free, okay. F- <laughs> now what do we do? <laughs> yep. Because I think the sooner we can we can get there, you know, the more money artists are going to be making, and and the better it is going to be for for artists. And on that note, Jack Conte is half of Pomplamoose and the founder of Patreon. Jack, thanks so much for being on the Future of What. Yeah, for sure. Happy to be here. And that's it for this episode of The Future of What. We heard music from The Buggles, Blitz and Trapper, and Pomplamoose. This episode was recorded in New York at Argo Studios. Paul Ruest is our engineer. John Sepulvedo and Will Watts produce The Future of What. You can subscribe to our show at thefutureofwhat.bandcamp.com. I'm Portia Sabin. Thanks for listening. <laughs>